Hey, you're listening to the Creative Pep Talk Podcast. This show helps you build a thriving creative career. I'm your host, Andy J. Pizza. You can stay up to date with all things Creative Pep Talk by following me on Instagram at Andy J. Pizza. Let's get into today's episode. I really needed to rehaul my website. I was talking to some web people, looking around, and I got intrigued by Squarespace's new fluid engine, partially because it just sounds cool, but also because it allows you to drag and resize and layer up anything you can imagine. I dove in, rebuilt my site. It's the most me site that I've ever had. I just absolutely love it. Launched it. Got such a great response. Some industry illustration and designy peers even reached out and was like, hey, who coded this thing, man? I'm like, y'all, I did it by myself. No coding with Squarespace's new Fluid Engine. I told him like, you should go check it out. You're gonna be surprised with what you can do. And I built this thing before Squarespace reached out to sponsor the show. So I was like, boom, easy peasy. I was gonna tell you about this new site anyway. Go check it out, antijpizza.com if you wanna see what I did with it. If you want to try it yourself, make a site that's totally you, where you can build a portfolio, sell content and courses and all kinds of other stuff, head to squarespace.com for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain with promo code PEPTALK, all one word, all uppercase. This episode is supported by In The Making, an original podcast brought to you by Adobe Express, the all-in-one content creation app included in your Creative Cloud membership. If you are trying to boost the YouTube, TikTok, Reels content side of what you're doing, one episode of In The Making that I think will be super useful to you is their episode with John Ushai. I think John's method for including his audience in the process is really inspiring. And if you want to hear about that and more about leveling up your game in the creator economy, just search In The Making in your podcast player to listen. Many thanks to In The Making and Adobe Express for their support. Quick announcement. Last year, we joined Lindsey Jean Thompson and L. Luna in the 100 Day Project. Our community isn't officially doing that again this year, but you can follow the 100 Day Project at hashtag the 100 Day Project on Instagram and join in. The project starts April 2nd, 2019. That's this year. That's next month. You better get your ideas for your 100 Day Project together. Go uh, check it out, the100dayproject.org to learn more. Lots of people had big breakthroughs and all kinds of fun, exciting things happened when we did this last year. For me, these bigger, like quantity over quality kinds of creative projects unlocked my creative voice. And I think that it worked out my creative muscle. We're gonna be talking about working out those creative muscles today working out those pelvic floor muscles, if you will, uh, because we're gonna talk about pushing out those creative babies. And uh, (laughs) anyway, a great way to do that is the 100 Day Project. Thanks, Lindsey Jean Thompson and El Luna for all you do for the creative community. Go check it out, the100dayproject.org. Becoming a new you is no easy task. You need a friend to help guide you. In this series, Dr. Pizza, the midwife, is here to help you give birth to a new you. Can you feel it? 
Time has never been more ripe for conceiving a new you. Your spirit is ovulating. Get ready to push out a new beginning. Call the midwife, Dr. Pizza. So in the first episode of our Call the Midwife, Dr. Pizza series, we talked about conceiving of a new born baby you, a new future. What are the goals? What is your what is your desire? Conceiving of a moving image, something that gets you pumped about your future. And then in episode two, we created your new you birth plan. We talked about how to create clear objectives, list out key actions that you could measure and ultimately create a timeline of how to do this. So that's it, right? Like done, ready, new, here comes newborn baby you, everybody get ready to, no, of course that's not it. It's not all magical conception and birds and bees and rainbows and birthing plans and nice organiz- organization planners or, or, or organizers, I think they're called. That, that is not the truth about pregnancy. It's not the truth of birth. If you've birthed a baby or you've seen a baby birthed, whether it was in fourth grade sex ed or in the real world watching the bloody massacre that is childbirth. I mean, the beautiful miracle that is childbirth. You know that no, nay, conception and planning is barely even the start. Okay, you've created an objective. You've listed key actions. You've worked out the timeline. Done, right? Wrong! Birthing this new you and this new future you is that you want is not unlike birthing a baby. There's some magic at the start, some rough patches throughout the pregnancy, but the real game day is looming on the horizon. That's right, I'm talking about labor. It's all well and good to set your target and plan, but it's all for nothing if you don't do it. If you don't show up ready on game day and push through and birth that beautiful creative masterpiece. In this episode, we're going to talk about where the rubber hits the road, or more accurately, where the baby hits the pelvic floor. The goal, goal setting, businessy stuff. I never knew that on this podcast I'd be saying pelvic floor. The goal setting, businessy stuff is super important, but when it comes to your creative career, nothing can take you beyond the quality of your creativity. You can be the Warren Buffet of business. And by the way, I know his name is not Warren Buffet before I get emails, but if you, but it's a way more fun to say Warren Buffet. Fun to say. If you're a writer who sucks at writing, you're going to hit a ceiling. The problem is that this dance between business and creativity is really tricky. When you start making creativity your work, it ceases to be what it is at its best, play. Play and work are actually opposites, and learning how to play at a job, play for a job, is a real art in itself. By the way, I'm not just saying that you're, you're most creative when you're in a state of play because it sounds cool or it sounds right or it feels right on a gut level, man. No, it's science. Like your brain in a state of play, in a state of focus on having fun, not results, is the neurochemical situation. It's the situation where good creative work is going to happen. But we'll get to that. You see, 
when you make all these business plans for your creative work, it actually has the potential, if you're not careful, you don't know how to circumvent it or circumnavigate a lot of circumcisions around the... <laughs> the business, there's nothing to do with circumcision. Has the potential to, like, if all this business stuff, all this rational thought, if you're not careful and you don't, if you don't know better, it can actually have the potential to hurt your creativity. And it's one of the reasons why creatives historically have such a pushback on business. Now, as we learned in episode one of this series, Beautiful things can happen when thesis and antithesis come together and make synthesis. When two opposites come together to create something new, that's like the most creative thing that can happen. So how do you synthesize the productivity of business and the play of creativity? That's what we're talking about today. How can you hack your brain into playing for money, playing for work? an oxymoron. How can you create business objectives, but create like it's pointless play? It's kind of like being afraid of needles. Did you know that getting a shot hurts more if you tense your body? So if you're not afraid of needles and you're relaxed, the shot will actually hurt less. It's kind of twisted. So if you are afraid and you're tensing your body all up, the needles are actually going to hurt. And it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy. So if you are afraid, you actually have to learn to act like you're not afraid and relax your body. Same goes for pregnancy. The more anxious you are, the more heavier you breathe, the more locked up your body is, the more you're scared of the pain of labor and you're, ah, ah, and you're all in that register high up. Ah, ah. <laughs> what if I just keep playing that scene out? Ah. <laughs> oh, no. Uh <laughs> Golly. Okay. This is where Lamaz comes in. Lamaz. <laughs> Even just saying the word Lamaz is very relaxing. Say it with me. Lamaz. <laughs> I feel like Lamaz class could very well just be uh, saying that together. That like that's the way you get through pregnancy. Is like, okay, everybody, breathe in, and then. <laughs> Please don't turn this off. I understand it's a privilege, it's an honor, it's a it, there's a trust element of me being in your <laughs> headphones right now and I'm abusing it and I'm sorry. I won't do that again. Well, no promises, but I won't say Lamaze for a long time again. This episode is your creative Lamaze class to help you in your creative labor, to give birth to your sweetest newborn creative masterpieces. This episode, I want to teach you how to relax and play even when the pressure of feeding your babies in the real life is on the line. Now, for you youngsters out there that have never heard of Lamaze, let me explain I don't think I'm the first to say this, uh, but Lamaze, <laughs> Lamaze was like everywhere in the 90s. Like every single place you looked, it was about Lamaze. Lamaze is a method for natural childbirth popularized by every sitcom in the 90s. As far as I can tell, Lamaze was some kind of government conspiracy born from the 90s. Uh, every, every 90s sitcom had at least one episode about Lamaze, if not multiple, uh, multiple part series of episodes on Lamaze. 
Like, Lamaze nearly was a genre of sitcom in the 90s, and then boom, and the next century comes along, and Lamaze is gone as quickly as it came. Now, like a normal human, a rational person, I could have just looked up what the word Lamaze actually means, but I'm not buying it. I'm not taking their word for it. They they try to force feed this down our throats before. You think I'm actually going to believe their definition of Lamaze? Mm-mm, not this guy. Here's what I'm breaking this thing down live. Like, let's take a look at this word. Lamaze. Let's say this is a government conspiracy or some kind of corporate conspiracy. If you break down the word Lamaze, it's la maze. Now, my Spanish isn't that good. I'm a little rusty since high school, but I think la maze means female corn. <laughs> Could Lamaze, could Lamaze have been a corporate initiative from Big Corn to push high fructose corn syrup on pregnant women in a kind of hook the mom, hook the baby, eating two for one kind of deal? Probably not. Probably not. Now, I've never taken a Lamaze class, but as far as I can tell, it's a pretty expensive way for pregnant women to learn how to breathe. How to breathe. Learn how to breathe. It's a, it's a class to teach you how to do something you've done all your life without even thinking about it. Man, don't you wish you could go back to the 90s and just get a piece of that action, get a piece of that racket? Can you imagine? Before we get started into the bulk of this episode, let's just have a little spitball sesh. Let's take a minute and come up with the next Lamaze, Lamaze cash cow. What else could we teach people to do that they involuntarily already do for huge piles of cash? It's the biggest friggin' con of the 90s. How about we take it even further? What, 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 what kind of class could we teach now to teach people to do what they already know how to do for money? You, you know that thing that you've been doing your entire life? You know, being stuck in the present moment? Stuck existing in the present moment without any effort at all? And in fact, all of your efforts to exist in the past and future and time travel have been completely wasted. Not only have you involuntarily existed here, now, in the present moment, every second of your life, it's completely impossible for you to escape it. Like we consistently have dreamt in our literature throughout the ages of time travel, but the truth is we can't not be in the present. I'm going to start a class that will teach you how you can how to do that thing you can't not do and charge you seven easy payments of $39.67. Man. I'm going to be so rich after inventing this class. Wait a second. You <laughs> you already put it together. I get it. This makes total sense now. This is why meditation and capitalism is currently having this passionate love affair. There's no greater business than selling something to someone that they already have. Damn it, future. It's 2019. We're supposed to have broke free from the chains of the present and be fluidly moving into the past and future time traveling in cars run by trash, like nearly making a profit. Uh, it's like a uh, beyond, I don't know, what a, what's the opposite of a zero-sum game? Is that something relevant to what I'm saying right now? Like you're spending trash, getting rid of trash, and traveling through time. Instead, we're paying $9 a month to a subscription to an app to be even more imprisoned in the present moment than we've ever been. Where's the future? (sighs) By the way, before you send me emails that say, "Uh, Andy, LeMay's and meditations are real. (laughs) 
<laughs> I know that. Please don't send me those emails. I will quote the late, great Mitch Hedberg, the, the comic, and clarify when I said that joke that I'm only joking. I think it's incredibly powerful uh, to be conscious of what you're doing unconsciously, but we'll circle back to that at the end of this episode. For now, let me just give you six ways you can tap into a state of play where you're most creative even when the pressure's on. It will help you give birth and give that final push to get your newborn baby creative masterpieces into the world. Have you ever struggled to get into that creative flow or creative space consistently when the pressure is on? Like, have you ever, you know, when in school, when there's a deadline or, uh, or at work, when your paycheck or your promotion or, or whatever relies on you being creative, like right now, has, you, has that ever killed your creativity? Have you struggled as you've turned your creative passion into a profession to capture that flow state again and capture the fun and the passion again? If you've struggled to do that creatively or you can't remember the last time you were in that flow and that euphoric joy of making stuff, the tips in this episode will help you make this flow space a daily habit. And if you link enough of these days together, you might just have a thriving creative practice on your hands. Want to know how? Let's get started. (laughs) Six simple steps for birthing creative play for cash. Breathe in. Breathe out. (sighs) What if you breathe like that? (sighs) (laughs) Number one, let fun happen. Another title for this one is Business in the Frontal, Party in the Back. (laughs) I'll explain what I mean by that. The first rule of Lamaze is to let childbirth, let labor happen naturally. Let it start naturally. Uh, You know, wait till it starts itself. Now, what I'm going to say, the first rule that we're going to address is let fun happen naturally. Don't force it. That forcing, that planning, that productive part of your brain that says, we gotta, we can't be wasting time. We got to get stuff done now. That's your prefrontal cortex. It's the front part of your brain. And that's why I say business in the frontal, business in the prefrontal, party in the back. Okay. When you're in your prefrontal cortex, that's your planning. That's your productivity. That's getting stuff done. That's your sense of self. That's, uh, it's, uh, it's your organization, your rational brain, and it's really good for all the businessy stuff. It's good for planning your business. It's good for business in general. It's good for productivity. It's good for keeping the tribe alive through (laughs) keeping the tribe alive. Uh, (laughs) it's, we need it. It's good stuff, but we don't need it in the creative process. In fact, when you are your most creative, when you're in that state of flow, you're in a thing called transient hypofrontality. Hypo meaning not. Hyper meaning super. Like, like hyperfrontality would be all in your prefrontal cortex. Hypofrontality means 
in the back, getting out of that rational state and going to the back of your brain. And that's where the creative party happens. That's why it's business in the prefrontal, party in the back, like a sweet creative mullet. And, uh, and so work is very prefrontal. It's, uh, it's very like, oh, wait, we got to use every one of these minutes for good use and we got to organize it and plan it and be very rational and no time for messing around. How do you hack your way out of that? When you do have deadlines, when you do have, when you do need to be creatively productive, I often think that because of this transient hyperfrontality and this fighting of the front and the back of the brain in, in business and creativity, that productive creativity is nearly an oxymoron because they can't exist in the same place. But if you know that, if you understand that you're fighting against getting in your prefrontal, and you actually, you don't want any interruption. You don't want to, uh, you don't want to check into prefrontal. The idea, the best creative work you're going to do is when you lose sense of self, when you lose sense of productivity, meaning you, you lose sense of time and space. That's when you're going to be most creative. And every time you jump back into, wait, am I wasting time? Or wait, should oh, am I getting anything done? Or is this going to be worth anything? Or the critic or the editor or the ref to the game shows up. Every time you do that, you break the flow state and you have to start all over again. And sometimes you can't even get back into it, okay? So understanding that that's how your best creative work is going to happen means that you can plan to not plan. So one of the things you can do is plan up front. Uh, is you can practice your form, you can practice your technique, you can think critically about your work before you get started. You can set some objectives, you can set a brief, some constraints of like, this is the these are the kinds of things that I'm gonna explore. These are the colors I'm gonna use. These you know, make all these rational decisions before you get started. I think that's one of the reasons these constraints and barriers are really helpful, is that they get us prefrontal in the front of the process. And then once we're making, we're not making those decisions. We're not being rational. And we don't have to check in with the prefrontal. So it can also be prepare space and time to play and make sure you've got snacks so you don't get hungry and quit halfway through or make sure you've made, make sure you've gone into airplane mode and you've created a lovely space of play. John Cleese, there's a video on YouTube where he talks about creativity. I, I talk about it a lot in this podcast, but it's super helpful. Great reminder because I need to think about it once a week almost to remember to do this. He talks about the open mode versus the closed mode. The closed mode is getting in your prefrontal cortex, executing tasks, business. Open mode is play. It's creativity. And so what he would do is get everything ready, get all the setting right for a play session. Uh... Cal Newport calls this a rhythmic way of making stuff. So it's like 90 minutes to 120 minutes where it's a big session of uninterrupted focus. And if you don't have that uninterrupted focus, you can't get into the flow state. And so uh, what John Cleese would do is he, when he was writing for Monty Python is he would say, okay, for the next two hours, I'm just, there's no planning, there's no productivity. Nothing has to happen in those two hours except for I have to find my way into having fun writing. 
having fun making stuff. And you just start writing and trying to tickle yourself. Uh, <laughs> my niece actually does this thing where uh, she's not, she's kind of like, uh, she, like if you tickle her, like hee hee hee, she's kind of like, oh gosh, why are you doing that? That's don't, like, she, like my kids, I can tickle my kids and they're like cracking up, think it's hilarious and I'll tickle my niece, ha <laughs> ha, and she's like, oh gosh, don't touch me. And so <laughs> I respect that, but she's developed this thing where she will, tickle herself, which everybody knows you can't tickle yourself. Like you can't make yourself laugh from tickling yourself. There's some kind of weird voodoo magic that happens uh, when someone else tickles you that you can't replicate. But because she doesn't want other people to tickle her, she puts on a performance like it's hilarious. So (laughs) it's one of my favorite things. She'll be like, I'm going to tickle myself. (laughs) (laughs) She's tickling her own belly. It's the funniest, weirdest thing. But I want you to think about that image of tickling yourself and how crazy it is and do that for two hours. Give yourself those blocks in your creative practice, those times where nothing's going to happen. Only thing's going to happen is having some fun. One of the things that you can do to kind of systematically use that state of non-productivity productively that I found is find low stakes creative outlets. An example of this for a musician might be side bands that are maybe even like ironically bad, even like we're going to do like a classic or, you know, like a new country band. We're going to try to make like... (laughs) I feel like I'm going to offend some people if I start naming off names. But but basically, you know, I'm a big fan of uh, Justin Vernon from Bon Iver, and he has a bunch of side bands, Volcano Choir, that sounds like I made that up, The Shouting Matches, he The Big Red Machine, he's worked with Kanye, and a whole slew of people. And you can see that he's more comfortable making kind of whatever with all these other bands. And as he's doing these low stakes things where he's like, this isn't really my art project. This is, I'm just having a good time. We're just making silly stuff. You can see that he's learning. He's discovering in that experiment and in that having fun, he's learning new creative gems that he then takes back to his main art projects, his, his day job. And so if you, for me lately, YouTube has been like that. I've been making these YouTube videos and the rule for those videos is don't try to make them good. Just try to have a good time making them, and and I, I'm learning stuff and getting new energy from that that I'm bringing to my illustration practice and my podcast, uh, would both of which have become work, and so uh, it's reinvigorated all of my practices. So there you go. That's the first rule. It's the, probably the longest rule because it set up sets up the rest of them, but. Business in the frontal, party in the back. Breathe in. Breathe out. Lamas. Number two. Don't sit on ideas. The, the, The real number two of Lamas is about moving around. That actually... Like in the movies, you just see the woman that sits on the hospital bed the entire time, and that's actually terrible for progressing labor. You actually want—you didn't know that you were going to get a real lesson in childbirth 
uh, did you? But I've had three babies, and we've actually had those babies in three different ways. Like they were all very different approaches to labor. So I know a thing or two. I've I've seen the real deal. Uh, and one of the things you know is you don't actually want to sit on your butt all the time. You actually want to move around. That progresses labor. Tried all these different positions, and there's actually a lot of positions that are more helpful to getting that baby out than sitting. And the same goes for making creative stuff. Don't sit on your ideas. Get mobile, get action, get doing some stuff. I like, I'm calling this breadcrumbs, not bait, a fundamental shift in my creative practice that has really changed things for me, really has been thinking of my stuff as breadcrumbs, not bait. What do I mean by that? Okay, for whatever reason, you might be the same. My nature is to basically create in secret over a long period of time and like work on this masterpiece and just, you know, just obsess and get everything right. Oh, I can't share it to anybody yet because I, I got to drop this thing when it's ready. And then that thing, I'll put it online. It'll be like bait for my audience. Like, you know, it'll just be this juicy worm juicy thing sat there online waiting to snatch my audience. But honestly, it's a really terrible practice in terms of making stuff. It's also a really terrible practice for growing your audience. I suggest instead that you make in a, not a bait way where you just drop a giant thing at once that's perfect, but instead lay breadcrumbs online. And as you're making document and share it. And and don't worry about it being the perfect iteration when it drops. And I'm going to get to that in a second. But Gary Vaynerchuk, the marketing guy, he talks about documenting, not creating, like cataloging your process, not creating these perfect master masterpieces and letting people go on the journey with you. My wife, Sophie, on her Instagram at the thread house, uh, she's been going back into her foray into fiber art. She's, she had a craft business, but she's revisiting her college passion. She has a degree in textile art and she's doing this fine art. And she decided that she was going to share the entire process instead of just share final pieces when they're ready. She, it's scary but she's like, I'm getting back into this and these are the techniques I'm exploring and these are photos of my experiments and da 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 And it's amazing because I feel like people are really engaging with not just the, the work, they're loving the work, but they're ultimately following her on the journey and they get to be there for the breakthroughs and they get to celebrate them with her instead of just her kind of, you know, coming you know, from beyond the veil and being like, all right, I made this masterpiece. And there's this mystery to that. And there's this kind of, I think it's kind of an old way of thinking of creativity. I think of it, it's a kind of separatist way. Like a, it's kind of like saying word, I'm, I'm the creative genius and you don't even know how I made this thing. And it's very like, uh, it, it kind of deifies the creative instead of, humans making stuff for other humans. Like my favorite artists these days are people who I feel like they're kind of like me. 
they've learned some things. They have some, maybe even some talents that I don't have. And I like watching them like making stuff and releasing stuff and, and kind of getting to watch them improve over time bit by bit. And I think one of the things that stops me from making breadcrumbs and, and instead being tempted to make bait is I think, oh, I can't really put, I can't put that content on the podcast because that's supposed to be a book. Like, oh man, I got to say, I got to sit on that idea until it's right, until I got the perfect outlet for that thing. But I'll tell you what, I think probably a lot of you are glad that that guy that wrote the Game of Thrones book series didn't do that, didn't think, you know what, this would be, and maybe you wouldn't have known, but it could have been tempting to think ultimately the best outlet for a story like this would be TV, a TV series or a movie or some giant, like maybe he felt like this idea is so good that it's got to be, what's the biggest this thing could be? How does it need to exist in the world? But guess what? As far as I know, as far as my research tells me, he started writing those and publishing those books in 1996. And guess what? Even, you know, the majority of Game of Thrones fans don't go back and read the series. They don't go back and even skip ahead in the series and find out what happens. They might be giant fans, but they don't have time for that. Ain't nobody got time for that. Like, you need to get the stuff out. Like, I'm guessing even the bands that you really, really love, you don't go back to their previous bands and unearth everything. You have to be like a super, super freak fan. And once you're a super freak fan, you actually love even the bad stuff because you learn stuff about where it came from and what the journey was. Like there's no downside to laying breadcrumbs instead of uh, instead of trying to put stuff out to elevate yourself as this deified creative god. Start dropping breadcrumbs to make the connections. Instead of, uh, instead of thinking like, I'm going to put this out there and it's going to uh, be the, th- like, like quit, quit thinking of people that think, quit thinking people are watching you. They're not watching you. Put stuff out there so that they do so that they have something to watch, so they have something to follow, so they can, and there's actually an authenticity to letting people into your journey. And when they see your breakthroughs, they can see the authenticity of where they came from. It's a a really uh, magical process. It's something I've been trying to lean into heavily recently in my own creative work. I've been trying to not get hung up on whether this thing is ultimately supposed to be a uh, a novel or a book or a nonfiction thing and instead started as a series of sketches on Instagram that maybe turn into a longer form blog post that maybe turn into a series of podcasts that maybe turn into, uh, you know, a, a, a workbook that gets published on Kickstarter that maybe then gets picked up by a publisher and finds its true form. But don't be afraid to get that stuff out there. Don't sit on your ideas. Breathe in. I'm not going to do that every time. <laughs> Too weird. Uh, number three, the doula, the buddy system. A doula is like a birthing 
friend, the birthing partner that helps you. Uh, and the third thing in Lamaze is that you need a team. You need people alongside you, helping you through, holding your hand, people that know how to coach you into your best creative production. Like that's true in creativity as well. I think we often think of creativity as this solitary art form and it's the genius that goes out into the cabin and unearths and excavates the gems within him like Kanye West who says, I had treasures in my mind but couldn't open up my own vault. Like, okay, I think that again, old thinking. There's a movie, Don't Think Twice by Mike Birbiglia. He wrote and directed that movie and starred in it. And it went crazy rave reviews. It's phenomenal storytelling, very moving, very like slice of life. Uh, it's a movie about jealousy. It's really, really phenomenal. And that thing didn't just get excavated in a cabin, in a, ca- in a cab cabin. Started mixing up excavation caverns and cabins. The excavation cavern. That that's not where this movie came from. This movie came from him writing, creating buying lots of pizza for his friends, which is always a good idea, inviting them over, reading the script, and getting feedback and listening. You can collect data. You can listen to your audience, and you can listen to your friends and their suggestions. You don't have to take the advice. You don't have to use... You don't, You can reject the data. You can take the data and and do the contrarian opposite of it to prove a point. You're the one who gets to steer the ship, but there's no downside to collecting that data. I like to think of this buddy system of creativity like uh, going and getting some food. You know if you're in the mood for sushi, who to call. You know who to call if you're eating pizza. You know who your spicy food friends are. Like for me personally, something that's really helped me is that when it comes to books, I have a agent. And before I had an agent, I knew people who had written some books or who at least loved books that I loved. And I knew those are the people I need to talk to when I'm working on books. When it comes to jokes or talks or producing meaningful stories, I have friends who I talk to about that. When it comes to podcast ideas or business ideas or that kind of thing, I have friends who have taste for business tactics. That gets them, it tickles them. That's... How boring is it when business tickles you? That's me. Um, But I have those friends, and I know when I've got some new tactics, ideas for the podcast that are businessy, I know who to go talk to, and it helps me to even, whether it's on the phone or especially in person, seeing their facial expression of when I pitch an idea, what does it do to them? Did it land? Do I need to work on it? Do I need to say something else that's so valuable for me? And my best work has come from workshopping it with the buddy system. Number four is avoid interventions. The ideal situation for birthing a child is to avoid any drugs and medical interventions. Now, listen up. Before you get your back up and say, look, there's no wrong way to birth a child. I'm going to have to tell you right now that I completely agree with you. (laughs) And in fact... Our first child had a few interventions. Our second, we did completely naturally at home in a kid's 
uh, kiddie pool and an inflatable pool, and my wife screamed like the Hulk. It was the scariest thing I've ever seen. I thought she was going to burst. It freaked me out, and I saw my son plop into water, and I helped pull him up. It was freaky, and it was crazy and scary and also amazing. And then our third one, we had more interventions, and it was probably the smoothest uh, labor we had. Now, all the natural, I've just pissed off every person. <laughs> but the truth is, I do believe that, you know what? It's a it's a crazy thing doing this thing, and there's a bunch of ways to do it, and you can't always plan for it, and it doesn't always go smoothly. But Lamaze says that uh, to try to avoid as many interventions as possible because they can make it more complicated. Uh, I don't know why when I start talking about birth, I get so serious, like I'm really teaching you something, <laughs> something about birth. But for the analogy, it kind of works. Uh, the same goes for creativity. So one of the things I think about a lot is that you hear me say it all the time. I need to make some like a poster about it or something. I don't know. But toxic creative mythology is that for whatever reason, over the years, we've developed, you know, we've had these exceptions to the rule go on and tell us how to be the rules to being the exception, which is totally uh, crazy. It's totally oxymoronish, uh, moronic that you could know rules to breaking them. It doesn't make any sense. But what ends up happening is we develop all these bad ideas about creativity or at least, uh, um, at least what's the word? I want to say, I keep thinking impartial, but in, in the plan. I love doing this on the podcast where you guys are sat there. The words, blah, blah. I don't know. I, I wish I was trying to imitate you shouting what the word is to me, but I can't remember the word. And it's basically just incomplete. It's not the right word, but it's basically that. A lot of these ideas, they're not bad ideas. They're just incomplete ideas. And one of the, uh, now this one I do think is just straight up bad. And it's the idea that you, that creative people are at their best creatively when they're at their worst mentally. And I think that's just the most bogus garbage. I don't think that there's really any legitimacy to that. The only legitimacy I think that there is to that is that hardship and pain gets you in touch with the human experience. And that experience, when then filtered through your flow states, like very high uh, energy, high brain states, like the opposite of low brain states, if you filter those through your best brain states, you can get some really, really profound work. And I think maybe maybe that's where that comes from. And it's kind of a missing those piece, those latter pieces because you still have to be, the, the better you are mentally, the better you can get into that flow state, the better the creative work's going to be. And so here's what I think we can learn from that. I think that we can think about creativity as a sport of the mind. Nobody would think that athletes are at their best when they're physically at their worst. And the same goes for creativity. We should not think that we could possibly be at our best creatively when we're mentally at our worst. When you use your mental, you use your mind to make creative work, it's insanity. And so, what I think you got to do is avoid interventions, avoid 
all of the things that hurt your mental state. Take care of your brain. So maybe be careful with drugs, how, however you're going to be using those. Use, you know, I've been drinking less coffee because I've realized that it's harder for me to get into that flow state when I'm too caffeinated. A little bit of caffeine, for, and it's, it's different for everybody. And so like kind of figuring out what works for you, what's enough, what's too much, what kind of supplements help you. I like B vitamins. That helps me. Boiled eggs, having protein, that seems to help. I learned that from Susie Oltman. I've been eating two soft-boiled eggs every single day to get my, and having one cup of coffee instead of two or three in the morning to get my brain in the perfect state for entering flow. Another thing I've been doing more regularly, I've been trying to run, my goal is to run 50 times this year. Not huge, not going to change everything for me, but uh, it's actually a fact that running dramatically increases your flow states. It increases your ability to enter that hypofrontality and your problem solving and your thinking, and it gives your brain all a great neurochemical situation for making stuff. And I've definitely found that to be true. And so I've been running. So what are the natural interventions? What are the what are the situations that put your brain into the best possible state? Another thing I've been working on lately is mindfulness. Uh, mindfulness, not in a giant like practice, like a, and, and, and I'm not disinterested in or not interested in becoming more mindful through habits or, or meditation or whatever I am. And I actually probably will explore that next. But one thing I've been trying to do is when I'm not making creative work, not make it. And when I am making creative work, make it. (laughs) Doesn't sound profound, does it? But if you've worked from home for any period of time, you know about the phenomenon that when you're working from home and you're you're working as a freelancer, you're both never working and always working. And it's completely exhausting. It's kind of like if you're always in kind of a half sleep, you're never really fully rested and you're never really fully awake. And that's kind of like what working from home can be like if you don't create space and set real boundaries. And I think the same is for creativity. There's a temptation because time is so precious to be creating all the time lost in your mind instead of engaging in the experience of life. And I think that's a mistake. And then when you're supposed to be doing your rhythmic sessions of flow to be thinking about getting your oil changed or going to the dentist or the taxes that you have to pay. I hate that word taxes. But I think about, I just heard that Ricky Gervais, who wrote in the original British office, he actually didn't write that and didn't become a comedian or a writer until he was 41 years old. 41. He And the reason he could write the office was because of the life experience of working in an office. And... I just got to just, I got to get weird for a minute. Sometimes I start finding myself like, I'm just droning on. I'm talking, talking, talking. And sometimes I'm just like, look, man, if I'm feeling that, you're feeling that. Let's just take a little breather. How about you want to get a little Lamaze? I think maybe Lamaze could catch on as like an activity for non-pregnant people. Like just go around breathing. Anyway. I feel better now. I got a little bit of the weird stuff going, but Ricky Gervais, he lived a whole life first. And I think in order to make, uh, for I've said this before, if you want your art to be alive, you have to live. 
It can't live and breathe if you don't. And I've been trying to get better at when I'm playing with my kids, play with my kids. When I'm, you know, traveling and in a new city and eating and doing all that, do all that stuff and quit trying to create at the same time. Let the creative space be the creative space and let the life space be the life space and be mindful of that. And instead of constantly intervening, constantly interrupting both of those states. Number five, it's time to push, push yourself. Uh, (laughs) One of the things that you may not know, when I make the podcast artwork, I make these little drawings and they're really cute and the final drawing actually doesn't take that long. It might be a little fish that looks like a pencil, something like that. But what you don't know is that little drawing, that final drawing, doesn't usually take that much time, but I've usually drawn that thing 8,700 times. Like my sketchbooks are full of a ridiculous amount of the same kinds of drawing, just trying it in a bunch of different ways, exploring it in a bunch of different ways, you know, exploring the shapes and just seeing what happens. And number five is about making finders, not keepers. Finders, not keepers, means that your creative practice is a finding process, not a keeping process. If you create work and your mentality is to keep things, like making stuff to keep, like making stuff that's, oh, this is a keeper. If you're always trying to make a keeper, you're never going to be in the process of finding. And, And the true creative process is the opposite of strategy. So business is strategic, it's rational, it's this logical process, and whereas strategy means you have an end in mind and you reverse engineer a way to get there. That's what strategy means. It's like, that's where we want to go, and this is the plan on how to get there. Now, creativity is inherently the opposite. The idea is if you're going, there's no point to do something creative unless the idea is to not know where you're going to go. That's the whole idea of making creative work is if you're being truly creative, it should take you to places that you never expected to go. That's the definition of it. And so when you go into your creative process, if you're trying desperately to keep everything, if you're trying to be productive where every little thing that you make is a keeper, you're not going to be trying to find stuff. And I found in writing and in drawing, the best process for real creativity is to write in such a way where I'm trying to find things, where I'm trying to find patterns, where I'm trying to find funny accidents, when I'm trying to, you know, I'm just, I'm writing and writing and I'm seeing where this tangent goes and where that tangent goes, knowing full well that it's not all going to be keepers and that a lot of it's going to die on the cutting room floor. But Ultimately, as I keep writing, I will inevitably find something. And the same goes for that drawing. When I'm drawing, like some often, again, I'll be out with my family and I'll be worried about, oh, I've got to make that image for the podcast and I want it to be good. So I got to worry about it now and I've got to worry, all right, what should I do? Oh, I could draw that. I could do that. Well, that's kind of like this. And I'm thinking in my head when in fact, what I need to be, I can't really do the creative process until I'm doing it, until I'm working on it, until I'm putting pencil to paper. I can't see interesting connections and accidental connections between 
similar shapes and and that combinatorial like taking this object and that object and seeing that they have these things in common and it doesn't I can't see that or allow that to happen until I'm actually drawing and so I believe you should go into the process uh, and make your creative process finders not keepers I really like this little comic that Christoph Neiman shared recently on Twitter I'll put it in the show notes and he said that it's a pie chart of where I good ideas come from and there's some funny answers and everything, but 87% is effort. 80% and I totally believe that. Like sometimes when I get on stage and I share something and it sounds like I'm just making it up on the spot, but the truth is I have labored over the analogy, the payoffs, the story structures, the ideas, and it comes off as like, wow, well, hopefully it comes off like, wow, but for some people that that it's their taste and they're it's doing it for them, they're like, whoa, that thing is really doing something for me. And I can't believe what a good idea. But those good ideas, those those the good ideas on my Instagram, the good ideas in my work, they don't just happen just by popping into my head like, whoa, I've got an idea. No, they happen because I found it in the work. And almost always the best, funniest, most exciting ideas in my writing, in my podcast writing, come from trying to find stuff in the writing. Final one, number six in Lamaze is keep the baby and mom as close to each other as possible, as much as possible, skin to skin contact, breastfeeding right away. Don't let the mom and baby have too much separation. And I agree for your creative process, you are the mother and your work is your baby and you don't want to go too long without making stuff. In my opinion, you should make like six days a week, maybe take a Sabbath day to like let it rest and uh, <laughs> ultimately get, don't make creativity a thing that you do sometimes. Make it a thing that is a creative muscle that you work out every single day. Once you make flow, make that zone of creativity, a muscle memory, you will be able to do it on command. And that comes from making it a daily habit. I've made it a habit to probably about six days a week, make something I'm excited about. Even if it's just a joke, even if it's just something I wrote, even if it's just something, a doodle, an idea, a concept, whatever it is, some kind of thing where I'm getting, where I got into that state that I know is my good stuff. And it, and it, and it means that it's easier to show up and do it the next day. So uh, I, I always say that creativity is like breastfeeding <laughs> because the more you pump, the more it flows. I think we have this idea that we only have a certain amount of creativity in us. And if we use it all up and we do it too many days in a row, that we're going to go empty. And I would actually argue the opposite. The more days you do it in the row, the more likely you're going to keep doing it and do more of it. And you're going to train your brain. When I'm writing... Uh, and making connections and, and ideas, and I'm doing that regularly, I find that in my everyday life, I'm making more connections and conversation. And I'm, you know, I'm able to say something silly off the cuff or whatever, because I'm training my brain to think like that every day. And nothing, I kid you not, nothing, nothing has impacted my creativity quite like uh, morning pages. Now, listen, I don't do morning pages exactly as it prescri is prescribed, uh, in the book, The Artist's Way, where they basically say write three pages of unfiltered work 
every morning. I do a very similar process, and I recommend you tinker with your process of creating every day, but I highly recommend you make it a practice to make that finder's work where you're finding stuff by putting pencil to the page, so to speak, or literally uh, every single day and find something. Find one gem every day. If you find enough of those pearls, baby, you're going to make the most beautiful necklace one day. And that's, that's the practice. For me, every, almost every morning now, I'm writing. And I'm, I'm, I'm finding stuff in that writing. And it makes it easier to come back and slip straight into that muscle memory. And so don't be afraid that you're going to run out. Creativity is like breastfeeding. The more you pump, the more it flows. If you don't know that, the truth is the more you pump, the more milk you produce. So, and, and that creative baby is hungry. So you're going to don't, and if you go too long without pumping, you can get uh, mastitis or something like that. Sounds weird. Sounds, I'm not sure if that mastitis, then you get engorged. <laughs> All the words about breastfeeding. Don't let your creativity get engorged. Keep it flowing, baby. Keep it flowing. Sometimes you got to just pump some waste, some creative stuff that you're not even planning on using just to get that... Get that... Get the, get the flow going. <laughs> All right. Honestly, though, I think that learning how to learning how you unconsciously do what you do is the secret to going pro as an artist. At the beginning of the show, I joked about Lamaz and meditation just being uh, paying to learn what you do involuntarily, and it was a complete joke because actually I really believe that the secret to going pro as an artist is to actively learn how you do what you do unconsciously. Let me explain what I mean by that. So I'm going to introduce this topic with a with a really trippy idea, bro. And I want you to uh, <laughs> want you to embrace it as just a cool, whoa, trippy idea, man. There's a postmodern perspective in philosophy that says that philosophy is not about truth finding since we with our limited perception are unable to find objective truth then philosophy has always been not truth finding or or truth defining but merely idea generation concept generation just coming up with cool ideas that's what postmodern philosophers thinks philosophy is and always has been. Now, you don't have to agree with me. You can totally believe that truth is able to be objectively defined and found, but I highly recommend. It's quite choice. It's a delicious flavor when you allow yourself to taste ideas that just taste sugary sweet deliciousness without adding any actual substance to your life. You don't, they don't have to be true. You don't have to decide if you think they're true. They might just be something that lights you up. You've heard me say it a million times. I'll say it a million times again. Every framework is a lie, but some of them are useful. Like, you know, story structure, whatever, whatever it is, personality test. They're not true. There's no, you know, even the word tree isn't true. A tree is not a tree. It's the thing that's out there growing. A, the word tree is ma- merely a symbol 
that we use to define that thing. It's getting very deconstructed right near, now, very postmodern, like it, but just hear this idea. Don't judge it. Just soak it in. It's a cool one. This is Alan Watts. He said, what I am saying then is just because you don't know how you manage to be conscious, how you manage to grow and shape your body doesn't mean that you're not doing it. Equally, if you don't know how the universe shines the stars, constellates the constellations, or galactifies the galaxies, you don't know, but that doesn't mean that you aren't the one doing it. Just the same way as you are breathing without knowing how you breathe. He's saying, you're the one breathing. You're the one turning that Rice Krispie treat into energy <laughs> in your body. You're the one uh, pumping that blood through your heart. That's you. That's, you're the one who's doing all those things. You don't know you're doing it. You don't know how you're doing it. And who's to say that in the same way that you're also shining the stars right now, even though you don't know that you're doing it and you don't know how you're doing it. Now, I love that quote, not because I think it's true. I don't really care to decide on whether it's true. That doesn't do anything for me, but running that software through my brain, it gets me back into, the, into touch with the mystery of life, the unknowable, endless, endless potential of being a human, ruminating on these ideas, uh, these things that we do without knowing that we do them opens up all sorts of new perspectives and invigorates you with all kinds of new potential. So why do we knee-jerk away from examining our own creativity? I think there's this, again, toxic creative mythology out there that says if you dissect creativity, it's like dissecting a frog and it dies in the process. Like your creativity dies if you analyze it. In fact, there's a book I've been slowly reading called Poking a Dead Frog. It's about analyzing comedy. It's basically an interview with comedians about their craft. And often you can feel the trepidation that the comics feel in getting too analytical about their work. Like sometimes they're like pushing back, like, uh, I don't want to talk about this. It's getting, it's, it's, no, this isn't right. And I think it's because we intuitively know that creativity happens in the back of our brain, outside of the rational, logical, analytical, frontal lobe. And we know that when we're making stuff, that you have to avoid that rational, critical part of your mind or you will kill the flow. However, I've spent enough time studying comics to realize that although many comics fear this process of analyzing their comedy, that the all-time greats lean in. In fact, the all-time greats haven't just stepped into the analysis of their craft. They've stepped through it to the other side. I believe there's a point in an athlete's journey where they're forced to examine and work on their form. They're golfers, basketball players, quarterbacks. These are all sports people, I'm told. There, there comes a time in practice where it's time to tweak or modify their form. Now, if you do this in the game, you're dead. In fact, there are pitchers that have got so in their head, they forget how to pitch. It's real. It even has a name. It's called the Yips. <laughs> I love that name. I'm going to create a character called a Yip. There are pitchers 
that forget and never remember how to pitch again because they get so in their head in the in analyzing of the form of how they're doing it. I believe that artists are desperately afraid of the yips. We believe if we start examining creativity with our rational mind, we will forget how to do the very irrational work of creativity. However, if you listen to the true prose of comedy, you'll hear it. They faced the fears of the yips and they analyzed their craft and they became a pro because of it. Yes, they probably got worse before they got better. My guess is that the reason so many creative people are afraid to walk this path is that they start examining their practice. They start analyzing their creativity and for a short period of time, their creative work actually gets worse. Like they forget to have fun. I believe this is the difference, though, between the amateur artist and the pro. The amateur can be funny or moving or creative, but only does so unconsciously. They do it, but they don't know how they do it. And therefore, they can't do it consistently. It's often pass or fail. They're either on or they're off, and they can't really explain why or how they do it. But the pro can and will do what they do consistently well and sometimes outrageously well. To take another note from Christoph Niemann's, uh, a leaf from his book, uh, in his 99 U talk, he says a pro can be consistently good and sometimes great. That's the difference between an amateur and a pro. Amateur, pass or fail, sometimes on, sometimes fail. Some pieces of work are amazing and they don't know how it happened and sometimes it's just disaster. But the pros that know how they unconsciously do what they do, they can be consistently good and sometimes great. I think it's kind of like having a kid. Having kids is super scary, believe me. I know I have three of them. I've got three children under my watch. Lord help me. If we're, if we're honest, most people I know really experience a borderline regret. If I'm just going to be honest with you. After you have your first kid, you're like, what did I do? What's happening? Ah, because, uh, and, and especially if the kid's a challenge, because here's the thing. It's like the creative who starts to analyze their practice. At the start, everything breaks down and gets real scary, and we think of running the other way. One thing I didn't know about having a kid was that this new life of my child would be the death. Their life would be the death of my childhood. The moment you have a kid, you're no longer a kid. New life brings death. You panic. You grieve. You're like, oh, gosh, now I have to be a grown-up and I can't be a kid anymore. But you can't even throw a tantrum because you're an adult now. Act like one. But then over time, something happens. As your child grows, you see yourself in them. You see your inner child in them. You start to see through their eyes and it reconnects you with your inner childhood in a way that you haven't experienced since you were really little. The synthesis of being both an adult and a child, seeing through their eyes, but also seeing through your own has been one of the most enlightening experiences of my existence. I have the perspective, the logic, the rational reason of being an adult. But because of my kids, I have the irrational playfulness and joy of childhood. So there's a rebirth. One of my favorite things in this world is to watch my nephew color. Uh, he's a freaking maniac of a, in general. He's hilarious. But the way he colors is like an extreme sport. He does a giant primal scream before he starts. Rah! 
uh, rips open the coloring book and ravages a page with like a with with like such vigor and gusto, like like gets a red crayon and he's like like crazy, like ripping through the page often, <laughs> and he's just like this giant grin on his face, and often he finishes a page and slams open the book to a new one without even skipping a beat. At most, he'll finish the drawing and let out like a huge celebratory woo woo like turn the page and starts keeps making more and it's just amazing he's like whoa i freaking made that page my my you know there might be kids listening to this who don't want to be inappropriate but i owned that i owned that page like he just oh tears into these coloring books i've never seen anything like it the joy and the and the fervor and the flow state of this kid making stuff and i love watching him color because it gets me back in touch with what creativity is all about, that irrational play of a child, that pointless just doing it, the joy of putting pencil to the page, not for the outcome, not for the end result, but for the joy of the process. If you don't remember anything from this episode, remember this. The number one thing you can't afford to lose in your creative process is this, the fun of the process. The only sacred cow I beg you not to sacrifice at the altar of business is fun. You may be in a place where you're just striving and struggling and beating yourself up and beating up your work. Like, have you lost the passion and the joy of making creative stuff? Has the drudgery of trying to turn it into a business stolen the joy from your creative work? Don't turn around and run like those who start analyzing and get a little bit worse before they get better. You have to not just step into that, but step through it. Has the hardship of creative career, the creative career path built up so much pain and angst around making that you no longer find any fun You can't find your way into the joy and fun of making stuff. I get it. It's it's happened to me. The path to going pro is hard, and it's hard to go through that gauntlet without getting and come away unscathed. The bruises and the wounds can be so hard to recover from. There was so there was definitely a few year period back about five years ago where I'd lost the joy of making stuff and I knew that I couldn't make good stuff if I didn't figure out how to get back into it but just like the dust and the dirt of the of the struggle and the journey of making this creativity a career it can steal the joy it can it can cause you to forget what this is all about can cause you to forget that you're trying to play for work and just Then you start working for work and you lose the whole point. The solution is simple. And I want you to hear this. I want you to embrace this. I'm going to try to just transfer my thought and feeling into you right now. The solution is simple. And it's not hard to practice once you remember what it is you once did without even thinking about doing it. Remember and know and learn how you do what you used to do unconsciously. Learn how to have fun. 
Thanks for listening. I hope that we have been a good birth support team. The, uh, all of us over here at the Creative Pep Talk team, I hope I've been the midwife you always needed to help birth a, a new you. I know you can do it. Go, go, push, 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 push. I don't think that's what a midwife is supposed to say. Sounds more like a, some kind of sporting arena or someone chugging a beer. That's not really what it's like. I don't know. I'm not a midwife. I can't really help you birth babies, but I can, and I have, and I will every week show up to help you birth those beautiful baby masterpieces every single week. Thanks for listening. I hope this has really jazzed your shorts. Big old shout out to all you Patreon backers. We have a Patreon, Creative Pep Talk. Patreon.com slash Creative Pep Talk. You can go support the show. Give a dollar. Give two dollars. Give three dollars. Give four dollars. Give five dollars. Give six dollars. Give seven dollars. Give eight dollars. Give nine dollars. Give ten. <laughs> Some of you wanted me to keep going. Some of you hate me. Uh, but if you don't hate me and you want to go support the show, you can do it at Patreon.com slash Creative Pep Talk. We have a bunch of beautiful patrons. They are the lifeblood. They are the creative pepperonis. You could be a creative pepperoni too. One of these creative pepperonis, her name's Vicky Hughes. Vicky Hughes, she's a new Patreon backer. We celebrate you. We thank you, Vicky. Go, you can go follow her on Instagram at Vicky Made This. Let me make sure that's right. Vicky, V-I-C-K-Y, made this. And guess what we love about Vicky? Vicky doesn't just support me. She also sh- supports one of our past guests and my friend, Franerd, Fran, uh, and also like three or four or five other p- artists on Patreon. She is putting her money where her mouth is and supporting the community, and she ins- she's inspiring me to go support more people on Patreon because I only support one podcast. It's the Philosophize This podcast. Uh, but yeah, you can go do that. Thanks, Vicky. Thanks for backing the podcast. It means a lot. Uh, this episode has show notes where I tell you the books and and uh, d- just kind of all the, what do you call it? Footnotes, if you will, of where a lot of these ideas were uh, influenced from and all that good stuff. You can go find that at creativepeptalk.com slash episodes and uh thanks to yoni wolf and the band y for our theme music thanks to alex sug for editing the show and providing the music the soundtrack and go listen to the soundtrack it's good work in music good to get in that flow state number seven on the list it's a bonus want to get in that flow state go listen to alex sugs soundtrack for the creative pep talk podcast right now it doesn't have any lyrics just beautiful stuff and once you get to that track pencil in the sto- pencil in the stone it's like birds chirping you can feel like the hero you is about to pull and release the freaking pencil sword from the stone and raise it and destroy your enemies with ease ooh that's good stuff thanks alex okay thanks to lis- thanks to listening thanks to listening thanks for listening and until we speak again stay pepped up Dip, 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 stay pepped. Stay pepped up. Stay pepped up.